back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington. It may make fewer headlines than Chevron deference and the non-delegation doctrine, but civil service reform remains a common topic of discussion among those who think about the administrative state. Balancing ideals like accountability, efficiency, expertise, and professionalism across the federal workforce is a difficult task especially at a time when the federal government has a more prominent role in the daily lives of Americans and people are more ideologically divided than ever. Today, we're joined by James Christian Blockwood, Executive Vice President of the Partnership for Public Service. In a recent article for Government Executive, he outlined an optimistic vision for achievable civil service reform in the near future. We're also joined today by the Gray Center's Co-Executive Director, Adam White. James Christian, welcome to Gray Matters. Uh, thanks so much uh, for the invitation. Really excited to join here. Uh, and really thanks to you and the Gray Center for providing this platform. As you mentioned, uh, I'm excited to talk about an issue that may not get as much attention or engender much excitement in some circles, but I certainly think it's important. So thank you. James Christian, I'm so I'm so glad you're here today. Uh, I always enjoy it when, when, when friends are on the podcast and uh, you and I have had conversations about this before. And as soon as I saw your, your article come out, I just knew we had to have you on the show. It's a great article and really, really glad you can be here. And maybe before we jump into the substance of it, could you just tell us a little bit about your your professional journey? You point out in the in the in the piece for government executive that that your view of this is really shaped by uh, your 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 career uh, as a as a career executive in four different federal agencies. Could you tell us a little bit about how you uh, how you arrived at uh, the partnership for public service and, and what you did before that? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, always good, Adam, to talk to a colleague and a friend. And of course, we've talked about a number of issues. And you know, my background will be familiar to you. Uh, but I'm happy to share that. Uh, and, you know, let me start with um, you know, first, I come from a decade and a half of public service, and uh, that's across the executive branch and the legislative branch and four different agencies. And because of this, and I'll get more into the details of where I've served, but because of this, I really have an appreciation for government and really a merit-based civil service. You know, I've seen that firsthand. And even before my experience, you know, I have a father that served in uh, the United States military and as a civil servant himself. And so a lot of this uh, comes from that kind of background. But specifically, you know, I started my career uh, at the Defense Department, working intelligence and counterterrorism uh, and doing things across different regions across the world. Uh, and then went to the Department of Homeland Security and worked uh, international affairs and uh, international policy more specifically uh, across the range of missions uh, that the department uh, handles from immigration to aviation security to uh, global supply chain management. Uh, and then went to the Department of Veteran Affairs, where I worked on uh, strategic planning and strategic foresight and trying to help those who have served um, honorably when they come back, uh, be able to transition and live uh, a really, really full lives. And then finally served at the Government Accountability Office, which is the one in legislative branch uh, organization. And there really helped with strategic planning as well as helped the Congress and uh, GAO itself think about what types of audits and work should the agency and Congress be cognizant of and do in the future. And why I share this experience is, you know, for me, I've been able to see military and civilian uh, analysts and operators really help preserve some of our national security. I've been able to see um, firsthand what some of our immigration policies and border security policies can do to keep us safe, but also facilitate and welcome new people to our country. 
And I've seen us do from a healthcare and even from a psychological and financial security perspective, take care of not necessarily the most vulnerable, but some that have served so honorably in our, in our military through our veterans. And then finally, you know, I have seen where in a world where truth um, shouldn't be questionable, but certainly uh, is, is running a thin line here, uh, working at an agency that helps to find um, and also raise what is true, what is accountable, and how we can do better as a government organization. So again, um, you know, fully have an appreciation for public service. And I believe uh, generally most uh, civil servants like I did when I was in, uh, you know, serve faithfully, ethically, and competently. And uh, now, of course, I'm at the Partnership for Public Service, where, um, again, I have an opportunity to serve just through a different lens. And maybe just a word about the the partnership uh, before we jump into the the meat of Schedule F. Um, I, I yeah, know some very, of our very good. are with the partnership, but but more ought to be. Could you just maybe say a word about it? Yeah, absolutely agree uh, that more should be. We are a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization um, that has uh, been around for more than two decades, and really we have a mission to um, strengthen government and inspire the next generation to serve. And we simply say that by better government, stronger democracy. And we do this through a range of ways. One, we look at the front end and we, we help with talent and recruitment and make sure our government has uh, the most highly qualified uh, individuals that are interested in serving, as well as that actually get an opportunity to serve. We do that through leadership development, and we work with leaders at all levels, uh, both political and career to help them be prepared for um, taking on very serious government jobs that require a really good skill and thought. And then we do a number of things that might be more familiar with some of the listeners, like our Service to America medals, which uh, is affectionately known as the SAMIs and highlights and celebrates the good work public servants are doing every day. Our Center for Presidential Transition, which if uh, you understand how one moves from one administration to the next and believe that that should be smooth and peaceful and that it should have the cooperation of all parties, uh, that plays a central role there. And then finally, there's one effort that I want to raise. It's our Call to Serve Network, which is us going to campuses uh, around the country and helping to really explain what government does for the people and help to inspire people to want to be part of that and, and, and join. So a really good organization that works from a nonpartisan lens and is a, is a huge supporter uh, and advocate and really um, enabler of, of government itself. Well, thank you for all that. Now I understand why you wrote the article, given your background <laughs> and your current work. So turning to the substance, early on, you mentioned Schedule F is a major call for change for some advocates of civil service reform. Can you tell our audience what Donald Trump's executive order 13957 was trying to do and what reclassifying civil servants under Schedule F would have meant? Yeah, you know, I really appreciate the question. And, um, you know, I'll probably refrain from what uh, the former president was intending to do uh, and maybe try to stick to the interpretation, at least as how I see it, as what it does um, in terms of the executive order. Um, you know, really, when you look at this, this would have... Um, exempt policy-oriented roles from competing or from competitive hiring rules and as well as change some of the protections as we know it um, right now for uh, certain civil civil servants and you know a lot of people don't know but generally it's divided into three different uh, classifications you have uh, a competitive service an accepted service and the senior executive service uh, this is really complicated stuff and um, one of the things is it's there are so many rules and there are so many 
um, ways and in, of interpreting those rules that people are now starting to talk about what might this have meant. And I really want to emphasize that um, this policy, if you interpret it one way, would have meant that it would have made some or many employees at will. Um, you know, some will say uh, upwards of the thousands, tens of thousands, and there are some messages that would have said even more than that. Uh, now, two million civil servants, we can talk about what that scale would have looked like. Um, but I want to focus on two things. Um, one, this could have meant, and this is what some people would would say, is that it's a world in which there could have been massive and indiscriminate firings. There is this Schedule F concept that it's an existential threat with the potential to destroy the free world and democracy as we know it. And it's a return to the spoil system where loyalty is valued more than any other quality. That is one way to view of what it could have meant. Um, there's another world in which it could have meant that it holds uh, civil servants more accountable. It actually looks at a more productive and competent workforce that understands their role. And really, it could have meant that it allowed democracy to show the best of what it has to offer by having a true peaceful transfer of power where one administration that comes in after another administration has the full support of a knowledgeable, professional workforce that is earnestly helping it to implement the policies, whether they politically or personally agree or not. So I really appreciate the question around what it could have meant. And the reason why that's also important is, you know, it was enacted in the last uh, few uh, months of uh, the President Trump's administration as an executive order. And it was very quickly rescinded in the earliest months of the Biden administration. So there wasn't a lot of time to really understand what effect it had. Um, so really, this is a lot of what could it have. That's a very wide range of possibilities from one <laughs> change. And you criticized that policy specifically for missing an opportunity for meaningful and long-term reform. When you think about those issues, how could civil service reformers preserve a talented, nonpartisan career workforce but still retain that accountability to the elected branches of government. Yeah, I mean, you know, let me start just by saying, you know, kind of as a scene setter here, um, our country is divided and we have some major issues here at home and abroad. And, you know, fortunately, we have a system that allows us to choose who we want to represent us, to lead us through those challenges. We vote for who we believe will help our nation be most prosperous. Um, and that is who generally gets elected. And democracy only works if we respect that system and the outcomes of those elections. Uh, so when I think about, you know, Schedule F, and again, I'm less critical of the policy because I believe it's a policy choice. Um, now, I will affirmatively say I do not believe it's the best policy cho choice and that I fully support a merit-based civil service. And I can go into more of why I don't think it's the best choice, but I do think it's a choice and that a president deserves to think about and, uh, and, and lead in a way that their policies can be executed and with people that are truly trying to help them do that. Now, why I say this is an opportunity for meaningful, it's a missed opportunity for meaningful reform is because if you read some of the headlines right now, uh, people are, 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 are very hyperbolic and they're very targeted. Some can say they're very misleading and um, some can say they're incredibly divisive. And because of that, you have a number of individuals and organizations positioning and really creating sides. And that is now turning into my side believes this and my side believes that. And it's really hard to find a space where there's agreement that our government can do better and serve the American people better. 
but we're missing that opportunity to really look at what that reform might look like because we're really concentrated on those hyperbolic opposing and polaristic sides. And so I, I think that's one reason why we're missing the meaningful piece of this. And then, you know, why I say in terms of it's not the best policy for long-term reform is we have a math problem here. Uh, a president already gets to appoint 4,000 or so uh, political appointments and um, more than a thousand of those which require Senate confirmation. Most presidents now within modern history don't actually make it to that number currently. So to then create a schedule that would look at um, significantly increasing those number of appointees seems impractical. You know, doing that on a massive scale of tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands is, is if not impractical, it's certainly ill-advised. And I just think uh, longer term, that then creates potentially a disruptive cycle because you could have, one, a problem of not being able to appoint um, a number of people in the, in the correct positions with the right competencies to do that. But you could also, in the next administration, have where your next, your next administration is certainly doing what you just did in terms of appointing new people. So it's a lot of turnover. It's, you know, last thing I'll say on this is um, what can be done by executive order can be undone by executive order. And I don't think that that's a long-term solution because it could be cyclical and disruptive. Um, and it's, again, missing an opportunity where there is agreement, regardless of politics, that we can do better as a government. Let's seize the moment and let's talk about what that reform might look like. You know, James Christian, the, the crux of the, the, the argument for Schedule F was, was that um, there are people in civil service that, that exercise uh, significant policy discretion. Uh, just a, a few weeks ago on, on this podcast, we had a conversation with David Bernhardt. He was the Secretary of Interior, and he has a new book out where he's very, very critical of the civil service, or at least parts of the civil service. Uh, in fact, after that, I, I wound up interviewing him on, on a C-SPAN interview that I don't think is out yet. So it was a very different conversation um, in terms of his his viewpoint um, at, versus yours. And I guess maybe the simplest way to ask the, the question is this. Um, what about that problem that Schedule F was trying to get at about um, the career workforce uh, and its its policy discretion? How do we transcend politics here um, when, when some folks who aren't politically appointed um, do have significant either practical discretion or sometimes you know pretty clear policy discretion or or am i am i is that am i begging the question here no i think it's an appropriate question it's one that i'm hoping more people uh, earnestly uh, look to, to to answer and you know i would say um you know understanding the role of a civil servant is really important here and um a president that is duly elected he or she should be able to implement the policies as long as they are uh, ethically and legally aligned uh, with our constitution and, and our laws, should be able to implement those policies. And it's not the job of a civil servant to prevent that. And in fact, if you're a civil servant and your personal uh, beliefs or your political beliefs get in the way of you being able to faithfully serve in your position and uphold the constitutional oath that you took, then honestly, civil service is not uh, the, the place for you. There are other places that you could probably do more, but I wouldn't recommend um, federal service in that regard. And, and, and so I think there's a little bit of a mismatch here where some believe that people should be in roles that can exercise their own individual beliefs and prevent a political uh, appointee, or uh, for that matter, all the way up to a president 
from doing what they were elected to do and would be representing the people that elected them to do it. Um, you know, I also might add, and again, um, I look forward to kind of seeing the the C-SPAN interview that you, that you referenced with uh, Bernhardt. I think that would be uh, interesting because his, his, his book certainly was. But it, it doesn't help to have a generally negative view of government. And there's already so much aggression towards government. And there's this thought that rooting out certain parts of it, um, because th- there can be some improvement and there does need to be some accountability and performance is a real issue, but rooting out certain parts of it all of a sudden gets translated uh, to rooting out all of it or disregarding merit principles or disregarding public service altogether. And and I just don't believe that that is what should be perpetuated. And I'm I'm actually advocating for the exact opposite where I say, um, you know, public servants are as near to everyday heroes uh, as you can get in my view. And um, we should be celebrating and incentivizing people towards public service. So, you know, just, just to put a little finer of a point on this, um, I, I think there are there are real accountability issues. Um, one, the public, if you think a uh, recent survey that the Partnership for Public Service did, uh, four in 10 don't trust, or only four in 10 trust the government to do um, what it says it will do the majority of the time. Um, and so trust is very low. Uh, many, uh, around 50% or so, believe that um, holding public servants accountable uh, does not happen as adequately as it should. And you do have some places where there needs to be improvement or there needs to be some better performance management. So let's let's all agree that that, that that's possible and that exists, um, but let's not do it to our own detriment in such negative um, terms where uh, we can't we can't turn the corner and, and, and see a better way through this. Yeah, if I could just throw in my own editorial comment. Um, I think there's a lot of truth in what you said. Um, for for as important as I mean, looking looking at this historically, as important as you know, Hamilton's Alexander Hamilton's Federal Seventy argument for the unitary executive and energy and executive, as important as it is, uh, so much of Hamilton's thoughts in the the papers that follow, and especially Federal Seventy Six, uh, he where he's writing about Senate confirmed uh, cabinet leadership. Um, he's very very focused on steady administration. And, and especially steady administration as a means for building public confidence in government, steadiness from one administration to the next included. And, and you look generations later at, at, at Lincoln and the, the post-Lincoln Republicans and, and their sense of government. You know, I, I look at their agenda, everything from, of course, the Civil War and ending slavery, but, but the, the Freedmen's Bureau and the Homestead Act and the land-grant universities and, and all of that sort of small-R Republican agenda. Now, one of the last things they did was of that generation was the Pendleton Act, right? The, the civil service reforms. And so both in, in Hamilton's time and in Lincoln and the post-Lincoln era, there's always this challenge of, of ensuring politically accountable leadership, but also ensuring good, steady, effective government. And, and both of those generations thought you could have both of those things. Um, and, and so in many ways, the, the things that you're writing about and, and advocating for our, our timeless questions in, in American constitutional self-government. Yeah, I abs- absolutely in agreement. Um, and, you know, we've, we've, we've been at this for uh, almost 200 years of trying to perfect um, how we govern ourselves. And so one of the, the best things about that is uh, we're trying to make a more perfect union. And in, in that in of itself means um, perfection might not be attainable. And it's the pursuit of it to which makes um, all of this worthy. And I, I do think that you can have, and in fact, you need um, 
a competent professional civil service to ensure good management. Um, and then you need um, good leadership that generally, at least in our current system, comes by way of political uh, appointments and elected officials um, to, to, to lead us and to decide the policies and to represent the people that elected them uh, so that we can prosper and move forward. And I think that can coexist, and I think it has to. Um, one of the things that I would, again, just raise is, uh, you know, I think if we're looking at when it is on the civil service side or the political appointment, um, I, I would want to see a real understanding of what it means to serve. I want people to truly understand that they're taking an oath and that they're representing the American people and that the Constitution um, matters. And I think if you are leading from a set of principles, and um, we have at the Partnership for Public Service a public service leadership model, and it's centered around um, public trust and commitment to public good. And if you have individuals that are centered similarly, and that is what is driving them, I believe whether it is on the civil service side or whether it is on the political side, you will have uh, stronger, better um, leaders making better decisions and better outcomes uh, for our country. And so I absolutely agree. This is a, a, a timeless question, a timeless issue, um, but one that we ought to fully embrace and fully take on uh, because we have to get it right. Maybe let's change gears and and talk about uh, the basic workforce issues that you write about. Um, the great challenges in recruiting talent, in hiring, uh, in in promoting, uh, holding accountable, sometimes firing, um, and and keeping all all this in mind in an era when careers in general aren't necessarily what they were fifty years ago. Right, the next generation of government workers, like the next generation of all workers, are people who are less likely to have lifelong employment in one employer. They're looking at, at multiple chapters in their career. Uh, maybe the, the the simplest way to, to ask this is just the blunt question. <laughs> um, is the current process of hiring and firing civil servants too cumbersome? Yeah, I mean, the simple answer is yes. And then let me now give a little bit more of a complicated answer. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I hear a lot of stories about how difficult it is to get uh, a federal job. Uh, you know, unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily match my experience. Um, in fact, I found my way to government and many of the jobs that I then took on at different agencies through USA Jobs, which is almost when you say USA Jobs, you get certain reactions from people depending on their experience. Um, but I was able to navigate a very complex system. And I, I, I did so in a way that um, it afforded me opportunities to serve. But I can understand that that's not everyone's experience. And if you go and you think about more broadly what's happening um, in the private sector, uh, it, there's probably some things we need to address. So if you think about the time from applying to, to hiring um, in the government, it's over 100 days. In the private sector, it's more around 30 days. I mean, having a, a three times or three X difference there is, is problematic. Um, if you look at on the earliest end of this kind of Let's talk about recruitment. Uh, government doesn't do the best job, and maybe it shouldn't be using its appropriated funds to do this, but doesn't do the best job of promoting itself and talking about the good work it does every single day. Um, again, if you want to see some of these examples, I refer people to the, the SAMIs, um, the Service to America Medals that the partnership does. But um, I think we have to look at the front end and look at talent pipelines and look at recruitment. And if government isn't really raising the profile of the good work that America, that the public servants do for the American public, um, then we need a real campaign. You know, I'm not saying the kind of 
poster of the bearded man and a tall hat covered in the colors of our flag pointing at you type campaign, but one that says, look, there are only things that you can do through federal service. And you're going to have a mission that is arguably one of the most important and a job that is one of the most noble. And you get to represent communities and people and touch lives every day. We need that kind of campaign to say, government, first and foremost, everyone, if you have the opportunity, you should want to serve. And then secondly, you know, when I talk about accountability, um, you, you know, we need to think about what does that mean? So if we can hire, I would say, great, let's hire and let's hire fast. And if we need to hold people accountable and we need to do some performance management, I would say, okay, then let's fire and let's fire fast. So I would say hire fast and fire faster where it's um, a way to get people in. But if it's the wrong person for a number of reasons, then let's not make, let's make sure we don't hold on to them. And let me just uh, maybe just add to that because there's a little bit more complexity to it. It's not just fire without cause. It's not just fire without giving an opportunity to understand the role and improve. It's, you know, work with managers and supervisors to understand performance and actually manage performance, provide training on a very complicated system, um, support decisions of managers that are seeking disciplinary action, um, and, you know, fulfill organizations that are there to help adjudicate some of that. The MSPB, Merit System Protection Board, um, needs to have uh, full membership and needs to look at uh, some of those cases that come to it. And if you look at some of the, the data there, you know, nearly eight in 10 um, agree that federal termination procedures discourage the firing of poor performers, and 30% of all adverse actions brought to that MSPB are upheld without compromise. And we need, we need to think about what those numbers are, are, are telling us. Um, and it's actually even more problematic that if you think about the 1978 Civil Service Reform Act has remained largely unaltered uh, for more than three decades here. Uh, but at any rate, you know, one of the other things that I would highlight is you know, hire, fire. We need to look at how how we promote and encourage people to pursue public service. Uh, and then I would also say we need to look at where we are reaching out to to different audiences, um, where we recruit from, diverse locations, different schools, different geographic areas. Um, people don't understand, or at least don't aren't as aware that more than eighty percent of people actually work outside of Washington. So let's look at where we are getting people from. Let's recruit from more rural areas. Let's let's recruit from people who have a wide range of ideological values and views so that uh, we have a truly diverse federal workforce. So lots lots to unpack here, but I agree that there are uh, there is work to do across the recruitment and the hiring. There's work to do across performance management and, and firing. And then there's also um, this idea that we need to promote the federal workforce so that we have the talent that we need in a really rapidly changing workforce uh, environment. And one quick follow-up question about diversity and hiring geographically. Are you saying even though most of the jobs are outside of Washington, that most of the candidates still come from the same small list of places? You know, not necessarily the small list of places. Um, but what I would, what I would encourage um, is to look at what opportunities are we providing for different people of different backgrounds? So think about socioeconomically. Um, think about uh, of course, uh, diversity in the widest sense. Again, I really believe in the um, ideological differences that we should be um, looking for. Uh, think about, of course, uh, race, gender, and other categories that we would want to better reflect what we are and look like as a nation. And so it, it's, it's less about saying that it's all coming from a small uh, list of places 
Uh, and it's more saying, let's examine where we are doing our best to recruit from and where we are making awareness about the opportunities to serve. And let's just make sure we're being as expansive as possible so that we truly get t- the, the top talent and we truly get talent that represents all of us. Another specific thing you write about in the article is that it's crucial for managers to address poor performance for new employees during a probation period. What makes that so crucial, that quick action? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, one, I would be advocating for an affirmative decision during and up to whatever that performance uh, probation period is. Sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's two years, depending on the role. What, What that's asking for is instead of bringing someone on board and working with them and understanding and giving them every opportunity to succeed, and despite all your best efforts learning for a number of reasons, they either don't have the, the skill, uh, the qualifications, um, or aren't motivated by the right things, or have shown that they're not going to be able to uphold what they're being asked to do. Instead of what some would say happens is keeping them on board, moving them to different offices within your organization, moving them to different agencies, um, and allowing someone who is not meeting those expectations to continue to serve in our public service. I would say during that probationary period where there are um, still protections, but certainly opportunity to uh, remove an employee faster and without as much um, restriction, uh, that would be the opportune time to consider that. And I think we should uh, encourage kind of an affirmative decision. Is this person meeting the expectation and really worthy of public service? Yes, no, right before or right at the point of that probationary period when it ends. And then turning to the positive side, you've mentioned the Sammies a couple times now. How can rewarding good performers with public recognition improve the functioning of the civil service? Yeah, you know, very rarely do things get better by only degrading it and showing the worst of it. And I think shining a light on where there are many bright spots and where there are federal employees working like tirelessly every day for the American public, uh, not only would be encouraging for, for people who are doing those jobs, but will give a sense to those who are benefiting from those services and, 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 and that job to understand what they're up against and to understand that they are doing really good work. And I think when, when I think about what would make someone a better uh, performer, um, I look at positive motivation, and I also look at incentivizing and rewarding. So people don't join generally um, the government for monetary reasons or financial wealth. Now, I've always learned, and I, I remember this uh, from uh, my father and mother in conversations before joining uh, federal service myself, um, you'll never be rich, but you'll never be poor. And that really stuck with me. You can do very well in a federal career. You can come in and have um, a long career and you can have and provide for your family in ways that are incredible. Um, but the, you generally aren't going there and you probably shouldn't. And someone who is um, getting rich off of public service, I, I might have some, some questions for and want to better understand. But that's generally not the motivation. People are motivated by the mission and motivated with the opportunity to serve and motivation to truly be able to make a difference and wanting to be a part of what makes our country so special. And I think that those are the qualities and those are the things that we should be highlighting. 
And so that's why I say we should be promoting and incentivizing and recognizing and rewarding our public servants, because it's not always going to be monetarily. Um, and I don't think things get better or improved by only casting shadows and negative light towards what they're trying to do. For these kind of reforms, how much of it needs to come from Congress and how much of it needs to come from the executive branch, the White House, and the Office of Personnel Management? And, I, and I'm thinking both substantively and procedurally, like in simplifying the process, is this a, a reform for the White House or is it a reform for Congress? And in setting standards, is this a job for the executive branch to do or is it more Congress or maybe it's both? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's both. And, um, you know, looking kind of across uh, one area, which is leadership. I think it's going to require strong leadership on the executive branch side to bring in the talent and the team that models and and has the type of leadership that we would want. And again, I would refer to our public service leadership model that I mentioned earlier. But I also think, you know, there could be a single standard for leadership. And, you know, that might come from um, OPM to look at the Office of Personnel Management to look at what that single standard of leadership should be. Um, I'd argue that the public service leadership model lays out some elements of what that could be in terms of public trust um, and, and commitment to public good. But I think that it would be helpful to also have Congress help in setting that single standard across um, our, our, our public service. And so there might be a place where I would say there's there's a role for both Congress uh, and the executive branch and, and quite frankly, the, the employees that are hired within those jobs. Um, another area that I think you know would require both um, is looking at um, is the the rules, regulations, and administration around um, how we hire and who we can hire. It is incredibly complicated. Um, there are so many different authorities. There are so many different ways to apply um, certain certain categories and certain uh, legal issues to how someone can be hired. Um, that it is difficult. It's almost as difficult as reading the U.S. tax code or something similar to that. And I think we need to simplify that, not just simplify on a technological side or simplify um, from a more superficial process side, but really look at, we've got a lot of authorities that are really complicated and in some cases contradict one another. And how do we simplify, how do we help ease what agencies are faced with when they're trying to hire the best talent? One specific thing you mentioned, not just that it's complicated, but can you talk a little bit about what you mean by skills-based hiring practices and what specific changes would be required to implement that from what you're talking about now? Yeah. And, you know, maybe for some that might be more unfamiliar with that philosophy of skills-based hiring, um, when you look at screening and hiring new new employees, it's what are those criteria? What are those qualifications? Um, there's certainly, you know, what skills, capabilities, talent do they bring do they bring to the organization? Um but in a lot of cases, there's this educational background or degree component. And that can be really limiting and prohibitive. And I'm not sure that that's going to necessarily translate to the best talent. And, you know, if I looked at recently, um, what are some of the qualifications on the general schedule? And at a GS9, if I remember correctly, um, there was a bachelor or master's degree requirement. And so, that misses a population of people who might have many other experiences, could be from the military, could be from a trade, could be from entrepreneurial and being self-employed in their own business. It could be um, someone who does have those degrees and more. But when I say um, 
you know, look at skills-based hiring is do a real assessment of what's needed for the position. Do a hard look at the different candidates. Um, eliminate things that really only on paper are what um, would differentiate them and look at how could someone with their skill set, and this could include not just hard skills, but soft skills, really contribute to the job and the specific job at hand. And so I think it's moving more away from traditionally some of the things that we might have coveted and thought that elevated people above um, other candidates. And it's looking at some particularly uh, given where we are now and where we're, we're trending from a future of work perspective, but looking at skills um, that are certainly much more appreciated um, now than they were before and will be going forward in the future, such as interpersonal skills, um, abilities to communicate, abilities to understand science, technology, AI, and other and other applications. That makes sense. And looking at that management side, did you have the same kind of thing in mind when you recommended improving mobility across agencies and job functions? Are there similar barriers there? Absolutely. Similar barriers. And, you know, unfortunately, although designed on the senior executive service side, at least to um, work across agencies and really benefit from talent that can be in one organization and move to another, um, and can really almost serve as a, as a surge capacity or to, to really accentuate skills, um, many don't actually move across agencies. Uh, many stay within their same agency or within their same general function area. And I think managers, from the experience you get and our need to apply skills um, to different areas, would, would benefit from that mobility. And so I think if we, if we look at how can we best ensure that our, our federal managers are best equipped, best experienced to, to help solve some of these really complex challenges, you know, I would argue that once obviously done a good job in, in one agency and in one function, if, if capable and having the skills to do another, um, moving them to those positions and benefiting from their skill there uh, would be advantageous to all of us. In our last few minutes, I wanted to focus back on Congress. Another thing you mentioned in the article was that you might advocate converting some Senate-confirmed positions to non-political roles. Can you talk about where that idea came from and why that might improve things. All right. As, as I mentioned with this, uh, you know, what I, what I deem is a, is a math problem here. Um, with the 4,000 or so political appointees and the more than 1,000 that are Senate confirmed as it is, um, most presidents don't get to those numbers alone. And if you think about the amount of times you have, the amount of days you have in um, a year, and you match that with the congressional calendar, and you match that with the process of appointment, it, it, it's near impossible to reach those numbers. And um, one of the things that I think we benefit from, uh, particularly if we have vacancies, if we have delayed confirmations for a variety of reasons, um, one of the things that could help that is let's have less Senate-confirmed positions, particularly for roles that don't require them. Um, I'd argue if you have a role that's vacant for a, a long period of time, then maybe that deserves the most scrutiny and review as to whether it needs to be Senate confirmed. Uh, that would force some prioritization. That would force some collaboration with executive branch and congressional uh, leadership. And that would also allow us to maybe not have as big of a math problem as, as we have today. Beyond the math problem, is there anything about Senate confirmation that prevents long-tenured and highly qualified career leaders from making it through that process and filling those management positions? I, I mean, I think it's I think it's very difficult. Um, and as some more recent appointments show, um, you do so at great cost. Um, you know, you have to think about 
all of the potential conflicts of interest. You have to think about um, the period to which before you're confirmed, um, you're not able to do a number of things. Um, and there, there's, there's some restrictions, legal restrictions um, that prevents you from doing that. Um, you have to divest of, of, of a lot. And so you're, you're asking for someone who may, by all intents and purposes, have the capacity, the skill, um, the desire to serve in a position, um, if not confirmed within a particular period of time, uh, to, do, to do something that would be at um, great cost to them. And of course, I know many that, that would and would sign up for that and would want to still be able to serve despite that. But I think there are some um, administrative and there are some political barriers that is really creating a complex and really inefficient and ineffective uh, political appointee system. You know, I know that's an issue that the the partnership is focused a lot on. There was a there was a hearing at the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. Um, I guess it was spring of last year, where uh, your colleague Christine Simmons testified on the issue of of Senate confirmed positions, and and Ann Joseph O'Connell from Stanford and others. Uh, there was a, it was a pretty wide ranging discussion uh, with with uh, then Senator Portman and Senator Peters. And so I'd encourage people to, to look up your colleague, uh, Christine's testimony there. Um, we're, we're running low on time. Um, Jace, could I maybe ask a, a question to wrap it up? Um, so this, this is a, since this is a, a podcast of the Scalia law school, it's a pretty lawyer centric podcast. Um, a lot of folks who are interested in administrative law and, and the constitutional separation of powers. So just the maybe basic bottom line question, um, what should people who are interested in administrative law and the constitutional separation of powers take away from, from your article? I, I completely appreciate the question, and I'll, I'll try to be helpful, um, if not at least responsive and, and, and strive to almost even be inspirational here. Um, first, let me just say, even before I get to what should people in administrative law um, or those interested in separation of powers take away, uh, let me just broadly speak to what I'm hoping people take away from the article more generally. Uh, one is um, we're, we're at a moment right now where there's real opportunity and there should be understanding that regardless of your political beliefs, that we want the best government we can have. And there's opportunity now to help shape that. And if we can be less divisive and more collaborative, we might be able to achieve that. Um, so just to kind of wrap this up a little bit, um, I also hope that they take away that first and foremost, um, we, we want a civil service based on merit and based on competence. We want to make sure that our civil servants are celebrated. I do think they should be well compensated, which generally they are, but we can always do some improvement there. That it has the trust of the American public that it serves, um, that it's fully representative across our country. And again, I want to go back to across the widest interpretation of diversity um, and that we look at ways that people feel inspired, um, that they are serving in a noble profession. And so I'm hoping that that is one thing that people take away. But very specifically and quickly here, um, for those interested in administrative law and separation of powers, uh, management of the civil service is complicated, and it is incredibly important. And our civil service, at least in my view, is critical to a well-functioning government. And uh, there's a lot yet to be determined and decided on this. Um, I think you're going to see constitutional lawyers, and I think you're going to see the courts really involved in um, playing even a major role in determining what are the powers that an executive branch executive order or a president can do in terms of managing its own workforce? Um, what are the responsibilities and powers of the legislative branch to help um, clarify classifications, those competitive, accepted, and senior executive service that I mentioned before? 
And um, we have to approach our greatest problems from like a legally prudent, constructive, and collaborative manner. And I think, again, this divisiveness that we're seeing, the partisanship that we're seeing um, it, it is really detrimental. And particularly at a point where our government's going to be tested, um, I would say uh, for those doing administrative law, those doing looking at and caring about separation of power, um, this is when government will be tested most. We are designed to have a balance of these different authorities and these different branches. And we want to preserve that separation of power because we believe that's what serves our, us, be, uh, us best. And that's what ultimately allows us to have a thriving democracy. Um, and there are going to be some real challenges. There are going to be um, some real thoughts around application and execution of how a president leads the executive branch on behalf, on behalf of the American people and how that president chooses to use laws, policies, and the workforce itself at their disposal to implement their agenda. And so there's the story is not yet written on this. And I think those interested in administrative law and those responsible for helping us interpret and execute um, accordingly have a real big job ahead. And I'm hoping, you know, they read between the lines of the article and walk away with with that. Well, thank you very much, James Christian, for joining us this morning and for writing the article. We'll link to that in the show notes as well as the Partnership for Public Service website. And we at the Gray Center are going to continue studying civil service reform and everything we've talked about today. And we'll link to some older papers from the Gray Center in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Good to see you, Adam. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Adlaw Center.